Hey everyone, it's Bradley. If you're in New York City, I wanted to invite you to the launch party for my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, on Tuesday, November 7th. It'll be here at PET Network on the Lower East Side. Just RSVP on my website, bradleytouch.com, where there's details for book events in both Los Angeles and Washington, too. And just like the main theme of my book, today's episode is a fun one all about the future of flying cars with a real expert from the UK. Hope you enjoy the show. All right, welcome back to Firewall. I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is someone that uh, I, I've met him once or twice, and then I've been reading his, his Substack and really come to enjoy it. Um, Jonathan Dockerell. Uh, Jonathan founded Sky Trades, which is a startup that we're going to talk about, but it turns passive air rights into uh, income or air rights to passive income. Um, writes, Where's My Flying Car? And is someone that I've sort of really enjoyed kind of getting to know in different ways. So, Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much, Bradley. Great to be here. Appreciate the intro. So give, give me the sort of initial, like, what made you interested in all this stuff? Yeah, so uh, I suppose I've always been interested in marketplaces primarily, um, is, is the kind of the main driver, um, particularly in the, in the UK uh, and Europe, kind of. Uber was one as well I was looking at. And I was working with a company and we were doing drone delivery, uh, kind of as a third party. And I noticed there were so many issues with it, like regulatory, it was very slow to get moving. Uh, and I said, okay, so what's going on here? Why is it so slow? Like what's happening with drones? Why are they so slow? They work, they fly. Uh, and I dug around and I realized that the big issue was that uh, the property owners who own the airspace below about 500 feet weren't able to get into the marketplace. So I went, hey, like that was my aha moment. This is what needs to be done. We need to aggregate this space and we need to get some passive income to the property owners to open up the airspace for drones. So yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. And, and so the reason this is a drone specific issue and not sort of planes and things like that is simply because your people's typically, and I know it probably varies by, by jurisdiction, but typically in the Western world, kind of how far do your air rights typically go for your home? Yeah, so it's it's primarily a common law jurisdiction issue. So that's why the US, UK, and a couple of other places. Yeah, it's it's generally accepted to be about 500 feet. Um, now, there's an argument to say it goes up to 5,000, uh, up to commercial air, airspace. But generally in the courts and also what's been vested uh, in the property owners in legislation is to 500 feet. And the interesting thing is drones um, have to fly below 400 feet, according to the FAA. So it's like this sweet spot. So why? Like why is the FAA worried that if drones were at 600 feet, it would start to interfere with, with commercial air traffic? Because planes are flying at like ultimately 37,000 feet, right? Yeah, 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 a lot higher. Well, they want this kind of area in between that's like a safety area. Now, I think it's overplayed. I think it's too it's too low. But also the drones, for their kind of economic reasons, don't want to go too, up too high and have to come down too far. Uh, they need to keep it at a level where it's actually economic for the uh, energy levels as well. Is, is, it, yeah. is it energy consumption or is it the, the time that it takes if it's going up? Both. Up? Both, but I mean, it, both feed into one. So if you're taking longer, you're consuming more energy. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay. So, and, and is there ex an example in history before where there was a commercial proposition like delivery drones that w went through airspace, but below 500 feet, or is this sort of the first time this has happened? It is kind of the first time it's happened. I mean, it, it, it's currently happening. So there are companies that are flying drones uh, commercially under 500 feet without the permission of the property owners. So, you know, that's a, that's a bit of an issue, um, but nothing uh, scaled uh, as yet, nothing scaled. So so really what I, I guess what we're looking to do is enable that scale to happen. So when you look at like, I don't know, Alphabet, uh, Amazon, whoever have been trying to do drone delivery, um, they've really been scuppered by two reasons. One, 
uh, this idea of beyond visual line of sight, which is effectively the drones, in order to be economic, need to be able to fly autonomously. So yeah. without a pilot that's watching every single drone flying, um, and also you need the airspace. So those two ingredients haven't been available. Right. The FAA recently has started giving more waivers for beyond visual line of sight. So there's more of these happening. So they're getting kind of approval from the FAA, if you like, that the um, the uh, the machines are safe. They're able to fly. And yes, you can do it in that manner. But they still haven't got this piece of the equation. Which right. is the so, so yeah, BVLOS. Like that, that we're sort of on the path now where the combination of progress at the FAA, progress on the technological front, will get there. Right. I think that's the same. Is that a safe assumption? Yeah. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, the, the technology to fly the drones is there. It's available. To fly them autonomously is available. Um, the technology that we're building to enable people to access the airspace is where while we're developing the technology, it's not as if we're recreating something that doesn't already exist in terms of component parts. Um, so, yeah, technology is there to do it for sure. So. Most people, I assume, are completely unaware that they even have the rights in their airspace up to 500 feet, right? Yeah, uh, yeah pretty much, yeah. So, so like, ha the companies that are doing drone delivery, they're just working on the assumption that most people will sort of never really notice. Uh, you know, what, what was the impetus for people to realizing, like, oh, I, they, I, I can stop this or get money for this? Yeah, sure, sure. So, yeah, there have been legal actions. So there's been, there's been a couple of incidences um where people have shot drones out of the sky uh, that have been flying over their backyard. Um, and while they have then been sued for damages uh, based on damaging the, uh, the equipment, um, the judges in these circumstances have never actually done anything to, to the person shooting it down. Um, so yes, it's happened, but a lot of people don't know they have the air rights and therefore are just kind of ignoring it. Uh, one of the issues that I've noticed as well is that because there's no collective, uh, if you like, there's no aggregated air rights, there's nobody actually speaking for the collective air rights owner. So it's individual. So let's say you're an individual in, I don't know, uh, Texas and a drone flies over your house. You don't want it there. Yeah, you've got to take this, uh, you know, action singly. You've got to kind of go through courts. You've got to take lawyers. There's a whole thing to it. Whereas if there's a, a kind of a collective uh, taking, not necessarily action, but actually kind of speaking for the air rights holders, uh, you can get a lot more, uh, you can get a lot further with the uh, drone companies. So it, it is, if, if drone companies have to pay every individual air rights holder through the space, um, how is the proposition of drone delivery still sort of economically efficient? Yeah, so, so it's, it's actually very efficient drone delivery as it stands. So if the drone companies get to scale, uh, they can get their cost down to below a dollar uh, per delivery. So if you compare that to, let's say, Uber Eats or DoorDash, where all in the cost could be anywhere like five, six, seven dollars. So there's a lot of margin there uh, to be made up. Now, what we're looking at is a per journey of around two dollars. So two dollars on a dollar plus their margin, uh, and there's still a lot of fat there in the equation. So yeah. So I I live in a I don't, but let's just say I live in a suburban home somewhere in the UK or the the US, and you know I I would happen to be in a attractive route for drone delivery companies. How much would I get every time a drone went through? We're we talking like fractions of a penny and it just adds up over time. How, how does it yeah, work? Well, not quite that low, but yeah, there's for sure there's a distribution depending on demand. So um, I guess the simplest way to put it is if you're in a town where they have a Walmart doing drone delivery, uh, the uh, housing or the air rights around that Walmart are going to be the most valuable. The ones at the end of the town, least valuable. But once you start opening up the space, you get other hubs that open up. 
to get crossovers. So if you look at a distribution table, what we've done is the, uh, the ones that get crossed the most can earn anything up to about three, three and a half thousand dollars a year, and the ones at the lower end, anywhere to nothing. So it really does depend on the demand, the frequency, and where they're flying to and from. And so right now, a company like Z- uh, ZipDrive, right? That's, ZipLine, uh, yeah. Sorry, I, I knew I was saying it wrong, and I said it wrong anyway. Um, are they just violating the law uh, in, in what they're doing? Yeah. Yep. And because there's sort of a humanitarian angle to what they do, is there an exemption for sort of emergency or nonprofit type stuff, or should they be paying as well? No, I mean, you, you can't really contract out of trespass, really. You need permission. So, uh, yeah, I mean, if they were, let's say, on somebody's land, let's say somebody's ranch, uh, and that person had said, yeah, you're fine to do it, yeah, there's absolutely no problem. But if you don't have their permission, you don't have the permission. Um, so, yeah, for sure, Zipline have an angle where they can do, uh, you know, and, and they started out in Africa doing it, and like wonderful. I mean, they've done great work. Yeah. Um, but the law still remains the same in common law jurisdictions. You need permission. So explain how the marketplace works. Like uh, individual homeowners just say, okay, I'm, I'm in, or does, is there some sort of collective action needed? No, so so uh, you could, it's not just homeowners. So, for example, when we're talking about air rights holders, it could be anywhere from a, from a REIT to a utility company, a rail company, uh, and individual homeowners, and actually local municipalities as well. So yes, effectively what we do is we we take the, the, the coordinates of your land, uh, we put it into an altitude as well, and we kind of uh, effectively codify that 3D airspace. Uh, and then- and That creates a legally binding contract between the landowner and the delivery company? Right, exactly. So yeah, so what the what the landowner does is that yes, I give you permission to fly in the airspace. The drone company also registers with us and says we want to fly A to B, and we connect the two dots, and that's effectively it. So we give them the legal route to fly. Got it. And is this basically just taking kind of the history of easements and just sort of translating it into the air? Yeah, I suppose that's the best way to put it. Yeah, I mean, interestingly, I've spoken to a couple of um, departments of transport in the U.S. Uh, officials. And there's quite a few who are interested in the idea of what they call abrogation easements, uh, which is effectively what we're building here. Um, but we're doing it in a kind of a collective way where we can also use individual property owners as well to kind of make the market slightly bigger. Um, but yeah, that's that's effectively it. Yeah. So you're Walmart, you're, you're a company uh, focused on drone delivery. Their best hope, I would imagine, is that you fail, right? Because... <laughs> you know, they'd rather not have to pay anything than pay it and not have to deal with this than deal with it. So are you sort of, does your success sort of come with their opposition by definition or are there drone delivery companies who are excited about what you're doing? Yeah, so so that's an interesting interesting question. Um, so there are drone delivery companies, yes, who are very interested in what we're doing on the basis that if we give them permission to airspace, they will go into that market. Mm-hmm. There are other more mature ones, uh, as you said, like Walmart, who would aggressively be against it. However, it's not that we are coming and saying we are creating a new law that you have to now abide by. What we're doing is we're just using what's existing. So if Walmart, for example, were to fly drones uh, around an area that had their air rights registered and the people weren't getting paid, well, that's a problem. It's a problem for the old owners uh, of those air rights. It's also the same way if a Walmart was to drive their uh, delivery truck onto their front lawn. Same right. issue. Right so, now, yeah. Yeah. So, so yes, in, in one sense, Walmart, I think initially, um, are, you know, some of the more mature ones, yes, would like us to fail, but ultimately us failing doesn't solve the problem, right? The problem still, still exists. Um, so us actually be, being successful will give Walmart and the drone companies more space to fly in. 
which they currently don't have unless they trespass. So while it doesn't seem kind of great for them initially, once they're paying for it, they get more space. So ultimately they win. So it seems like one, at least, I don't really know how the Irish and UK legal system works as well, but in the US, we have this giant plaintiff's bar with class action lawsuits on different topics all of the time. Are there plaintiff's lawyers sort of organizing landowners for class action suits against delivery journal companies? Yeah. So actually, we've, we've spoken to a few. So um, they've said, yes, if you can show us that the um, air rights have been violated or transported through, uh, you can give us the, t- the dates, times and who it was. Uh, yes, we have an action there we may take. So, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's class actions available in, in, in Ireland, less so in the UK, less so. It's one of the kind of go to market approaches, um, effectively, yeah. which is to say, hey, listen, uh, if you don't come on board and don't come into the system, there could be a problem here. So, right. yeah. Which is, at least in the US, gets interesting politically because then you have the sort of whole tort reform movement, which is sort of led by everyone who's on the other side of class action lawyers saying, well, no, you can't really. Uh, sue for this or this or that, and they try to create exemptions. Um, sure. and I, I wonder if there would be a movement to exempt it. I think what's interesting politically is the same people who usually support tort reform are pretty Republican, which are the same people that support property rights and mm-hmm. land rights and right. by extension, air rights. Yes. And so interestingly, the same people who would be their normal constituency, I think in this case, wouldn't be, right? Or at least would be harder to bring on board simply because it kind of, and it's like, it's even less of a political thing and more, on, at least in the US, on things like property rights, like a just deep-seated yeah. ideological thing. Yeah. Like I, I always, everybody never listened to me, but I always made the case to them or tried a few times that they should pursue a property rights approach to what they were doing in the sense of, if this is my home, whether I rent it or buy it, it is, my right to decide what to do with it, you know, right. um, as opposed to just sort of trying to fight from a regulatory standpoint of which they've won some and they've lost some. But I, I think that's a undertapped and, and powerful argument um, for you guys. So yeah. what about cities, both in terms of how would it work? And then just generally speaking, is, is drone delivery really a suburban thing more than anything else? Like, is there a world where that happens in cities or is it just too complicated? Uh, yeah, no, there is a world where it happens in cities. Um, currently, uh, and you know, w- whether you think good or bad, in Shenzhen in China, uh, which is pretty much high rise, uh, drone delivery, they're doing, I think, over like 150, 200,000 drone deliveries a year. Um, and what they do is they, they consolidate them. So they have delivery hubs. So effectively the drones come to a central location near a bunch of high rise buildings and you can collect your product. In cities, yeah. I, I mean, in urban, yeah, absolutely. But cities themselves can actually put in their um, their air rights into our system as well, so that they can benefit. So that uh, you know, when you see a roadway or you see a uh, you know a park or whatever, you could actually uh, put that into our system. You could also gain some income from that for the city and taxes or whatnot from that as well. But yeah, it can happen in cities. It's going to be easier in suburban though. So our approach initially um, is not unlike what DoorDash did in the early days, which is go suburban. So go to the areas where there's less high rise. Um, it's also easier to get contiguous land together. And, and it's also easier to get an actual marketplace, like a small atomic marketplace going with a small amount of homeowners or, um, or landowners. Uh, and that's our approach, yeah. So let, let's pivot a little more broadly to EVTOL, um, sure. kind of the whole. Uh, what's your take? I mean, it feels like 
there's a lot of excitement and momentum around this right now. But the reason I can't tell if that's true or in my head is because, as you know, and you've read it, I just wrote a novel about it. <laughs> yeah. So I, I can't decide if it's just because I'm thinking about it a lot or but am I, am I, you're, you're sort of in the bag on this one, too. But like, what do you think? I mean, you must think there's a lot of momentum around this, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love the book, by the way. Yeah, it's a great read. It's a lot of fun. Um, so thank you for that. Um, yeah, I think it, there is. There's a lot of momentum around it. There's a lot of money in it um, being pumped into it and a lot of people trying to get it right. I think. Um, I think we're a little further away than maybe people think um, on the basis that when you start putting people in things, the safety expectation goes up exponentially. Yeah. Um, the FAA and generally aviation uh, uh, regulators have done such a great job um, that the safety level in flying is so high, is so good that it almost makes them nervous to do anything. Like they've, they've done such a good job. Yeah, I, I, look, as, as, as someone who frequently fights with regulators and criticizes them, I, I will agree. I think the FAA has generally does a good job and has done a good job on drone regulation. Yeah, yeah, generally speaking. Well, especially if you think about their counterparts because they're within, in the U.S., at least within the U.S. Department of Transportation on autonomous vehicle regulation. Mm. There's nothing, right? right. It's black hole for a decade now. Whereas the FAA, people might agree or disagree with any specific decision they make, but they're they're dealing with it. Yep, yeah, hundred percent agree with you. And you know, on the on the on the kind of autonomous cars as well. I mean, I know it's slightly uh, off point, but I mean, there's so many road deaths from vehicles on the ground. You would think the first thing you would try and do is go autonomous, but but nevertheless, the the EV toll. Yeah, so there's there's a number of key players, as you know, and you you've kind of seen them. A lot of money going in. A lot of good test flights have happened. I think there's going to be a test flight in Paris during the Olympics. Um, by, by one of the players, and we'll see that they work. Commercially speaking, I think it, it's, it's, it's quite different. I think these have got to have vertiports, which are like heliports, but they've yeah. got to be in locations that are actually convenient for people. So yeah. it's not, you know, you can't just put them in an area kind of, you know, way downtown where people have to schlep to, to, to get to. And then right. otherwise it becomes like, do you know what Blade is? I'm sure you do. Yeah. Right. yeah. Like we have Blade that you can take to a helicopter to the airport which is effectively when you talk to an eVTEL company, often when they describe their model, kind of the same thing. Right. And it's, you know, like the reason why I don't take Blade to JFK is because by the time I get to the heliport and wait to get on it and it flies and it lands and I get to my terminal, it's just not that much faster than an Uber. And it's easier just to ha not have three or four different stops and processes along. Absolutely. The yeah, agreed. And, and I think one of the big things with eVTOL, which is going to play out, and one of the things we're looking at kind of down the track as well, is this idea of kind of physical infrastructure. So once you have landowners within a system that are pro urban air mobility, you can start to use that land or those buildings for other purposes. So if you can put a vertiport in a place that's actually important to people, like let's say, you know, a reasonably busy, um, you know, downtown location, you could actually put it there and people will use it and it can go to JFK or it doesn't even need to go to an airport. It may be going to just another town and that's absolutely fine. It doesn't have to go to an airport. You don't have security issues. Then it can start to work. But without the infrastructure, um, it's it. All that's going to happen is you're going to have fancier helicopters, really. So that infrastructure piece is really, really big. And I think that's something that's been overlooked. I think it's been overlooked because the guys who are building the flying cars, the air taxis are very focused on what they're doing, which is always the way. But well, yeah, and, and, and the vertiport piece, because, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of these guys, is like right. really outside of their expertise, right? Um, in the sense, that, you know, th they may have an idea of how you would want to construct a vertiport, but ultimately you're talking about generally public or publicly accessible 
land. So yep. the permitting, the zoning, yep. the regulatory, it, I mean, I find it fascinating. But I think most people <laughs> don't want to fucking deal with it. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It, it, for sure. It's a headache. At all. Yeah. I mean, I kind of wonder, and this was in the novel, you know, where the the CEO of the flying car company, her mom is the, the biggest parking lot operator in the U.S. Right. I think that's sort of a place where you could naturally build vertiports and avoid at least some of the planning and, yep. and permitting headaches um, that, that you would need around that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And, and once more people, I, I also think that the, the, the drones are kind of a lead in. Uh, so while everyone's working on drones and these EV tolls, if you get drones moving around the sky and you can see them and you become used to it, and you see them as part of your daily life, then having an EV toll in the air doesn't seem such a leap. So I think I, I think the drones need to come in to enable the EV toll to be accepted by the public. That's kind yeah. of my kind of view. Yeah, it. it creates belief. There, there are some EV toll companies, and I, I met with one the other day, that are more focused on sort of personal EV toll mm. ownership um, as opposed to sort of a more taxi-based system. Sure. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think I listen. I think they're cool. I, I love this whole area, right? So I, I'm very pro EV toll. I'm very pro kind of the individual ones. I think there's one called by a company which I love the name of Jetson, um, which is like a, a personal one. So I think I presume they've taken it from the Jetsons, the uh, the cartoon. Um, but yeah, these individual ones. I think you know conceptually they solve this problem whereby you can just step in your vehicle you can uh, and you can go to an airport you don't have to kind of change uh, transportation mode several times um getting them up in the air if you can consider scale and you have a bunch of these there's a whole other uh, load of problems with it I, I mean i think listen i think they're good if we can get them going i think it's good but personally i think the reality is if you you need passenger ones to make it scalable if you're just selling individual uh, flying EV tolls is a kind of a personal, almost like flying car. Um, I don't think you're going to go very far. I really don't think because you're you're going to get crushed down on a number of areas. Where do you land? So you need to go to a vertiport with a single person in your EV toll. Okay, so you've got to pay the same charges that you're going to pay if you have eight passengers. So it becomes uneconomic. So I, I don't know if the economics of that work. Um, conceptually, I love the idea. Um, but I just don't see that now, maybe in the future, maybe in the future, but I think having multiple people anyway, for transportation reasons, uh, is, is a better option. I think more people should be in less vehicles, generally speaking, that's just my right. view. So in, in thinking a little bit about sort of the divide within USDOT, where autonomous vehicles are totally stuck and drones are, you know, at least progressing and eVTOL is progressing. I mean, the, the political reason, as I understand it, is that the Teamsters, um, who the, the trucking union, um, has really been the main reason why autonomous vehicle regulation is stalled. There had been, I think it was in 2016 or so, a bill moving through Congress with bipartisan support, and then the Teamsters sort of stepped in. And I think we've had this weird combination of Trump and then Biden, who, even though they're different parties, both sort of self-identify as sort of Teamster-type guys, right? right? Because they appoint Secretary of Transportation, it's very easy to just say, okay, well, don't piss off the team students, then yeah. it just goes nowhere. Um, the, the good news, I think, for EVTOL overall is there's not an inherent entrenched interest that's being disrupted should EVTOL succeed. Now, the, the reality mm -hmm. is um, I don't think the teamsters are really being disrupted either because there's such a massive truck driver shortage. Um, mm -hmm. right. 
I don't think these are mutually exclusive in the slightest. Um, but nonetheless, that's the, the narrative that, that they're using. So the, the, the good news is for you guys is that you don't have to sort of take out, like say with Uber, like we had to do for taxi, yeah. um, an entrenched interest. The, the bad news is there is no regulatory framework, right? Everything's getting made up as it, as it goes along. So if you had to pick like entrenched interest that was powerful, but, but once you took them out, everything could sort of flow mm -hmm. or no major opponent, but also just wild west in terms of regulatory <laughs> structure, right. what do you think is better? Wow. Uh, devil in the deep blue sea. Um, so I, I, I like solving problems fundamentally. So I think I think the latter is where I would be on the basis that, yeah, you, you know, uh, David taking out Goliath, nice, fine. Um, but I like uh, finding the, the solutions to the problems we have. I think part of what we're doing is we're using existing legislation and we're using existing rules and regulations in order to grow a market that doesn't exist, to create a market effectively. And I think if we had to take out uh let, let's say you know from from the uber uh side you know the taxi medallions that would free us up but i don't i i don't think it would do the same thing that we're doing now which is actually picking through the things to 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 kind of leverage existing laws and regulations i also think it's in one way easier it seems hard but in one way it's easier because we're not having to change anything we are having to convince some hearts and minds sure um, but ultimately, when you're looking at things like drones and EV tolls, which will which will help people's lives, which will solve part of a sustainability agenda, you know, that can move things through a little quicker. So I guess, you know, I, I would take either and fight either, to be honest, Bradley. But I think that, that the latter is the one I would go with. Yeah. So I'm going to list, you know, within the EV tell world, some, some different things people work on. And you tell me, you place them in order of when they're most likely to happen sort of in sequence. Thing and then timing. So, okay. of the, the categories would be delivery drones, uh, kind of communal EVTOLs, personal EVTOLs, jetpacks. Right. Uh, Assuming that one day all of this exists, yeah. what's, what's the order and when will it happen? Well, well, it's funny actually. I have a friend who's working who has a jetpack company, so I must introduce you. He's he's working hard on that. It's, I mean, it's yeah. really cool. It's crazy, but it's cool. Yeah, yeah. I think in order, um, so delivery drones one, right? Um, I think delivery drones are the first. I think then second, which might run into the team series, is cargo drones. Um, I think they're a really interesting one because you can go along existing kind of uh, roadways and highways uh, and carry a bigger payload. The news about that one politically is, even though I know in the novel, I have a union leader who's sort of smart enough to see the VTOL threat uh, and in the air and sort of apply it to his union on the ground. Mm. The reality is it's almost a bridge too far for, for the unions to sort of, it's one thing we have to say, like the, if the trucks have drivers and now don't have drivers, that puts us out of a job the you know hey there's going to be stuff cargo and it's going in the air and that will reduce fewer truck traffic which could be bad for drivers one day yeah. like that one gets a, a more attenuated argument so okay I, yeah no that's fair that's I, I, I wouldn't be as worried about that one that's fair yeah first order so i guess the drone delivery uh for sure and urban urban drone delivery um then i think passenger ev toll but i think that is going to be along existing heli um heliport routes or helicopter routes. I think that's what's going to happen there. And I think there's a problem there as well if they don't break out from that. I think unless you get the infrastructure in place, it's going to continue just being a fancy helicopter. Yeah, it's, 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 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and then you get into the individual. Um, you, you see, even the individual EV tolls, the rules and regs that are going to be around that are going to be so tight uh, in order that where you can and cannot go that it starts to become unless you're living kind of in the middle of a ranch or somewhere, you know, open plains, it's probably not going to be very sensible. What so about outside, that's on that one, though, outside the U.S.? I, I spent a couple of months in Mexico City mm. um, and lived in a fancy neighborhood. And I would notice that at a certain point in the morning, a certain point later in the day, there'd basically be a f- bunch of helicopters in the sky because people were uh, partly because of traffic, partly because of safety. Um, taking helipads from their personal property, whether it's the top of their apartment building or their their home, to their office, yeah. uh, and never really touching the ground. So whether it's you know parts of Asia or Sao Paulo or Mexico City that are just wildly congested and maybe not uh, you know maybe there's a, a high sort of kidnapping risk as well. Mm-hmm. Is are there enough rich people like that to buy personal VTOLs to to make it a real business? I, I don't know. Um, yeah, potentially. I mean, the same is true in Sao Paulo. Um, you know, people live on on you know fancy places, and then they they get their own helicopter in and land on the building, and then they go back in the evening. Um, I, I'd say there are enough people to make one or two companies successful, but I'd say that's about the height of it. I think at the moment, Aleph uh, Aeronautics, which is a really interesting company, it's kind of they're building their flying car, and it looks like a flying car. Um, I think they're backed by by um, SpaceX. They're about they're pre-ordering for three hundred grand, um, and then you have the Jetson, which is pre-ordering for ninety-eight grand. So that's much more affordable. But yeah, it does need a rich person, um, and you need to be able to fly. Um, yeah, I'm sure there is a business in it. I think in places like Mexico City, um, Brazil, you have well, for, from their from their purposes, you have a regulatory framework that's quite different. So it's not a common law jurisdiction. Um, so the, the framework is a lot different. You can get the government to come in and just say yes or no to things effectively. It's a little bit like when people talk about, um, you know, uh, flying cars in Dubai. Well, yeah, I mean, someone just needs to sign on a line somewhere and you can get like a hundred of them in the air if you want. Right. Um, but the laws and regulations in the U S are very different. And, and in fact, we should be grateful for that. Right. <laughs> because I don't necessarily want my neighbor. Uh, just getting in something that happens to have wings and, you know, flying around the place. I think that could be a little bit tricky. Yes, for sure. And then uh, jetpacks are last, I assume? Jetpacks are last, but it depends on the use case, right? So the jetpacks, the, the, uh, and the guy I, I, I speak to, he's developed a, a new technology to make them, you can actually move them with your legs as opposed to holding a big thing on your back. Um, really cool technology. But he's looking at it for leisure purposes so that you would be able to do it, you know, in a kind of an open space. You'd just be able to have a bit of fun with it. And then also uh, there's a military aspect people are looking at with them. Yeah. And then search and rescue. So for those use cases, yes. For you or me, Bradley, kind of uh, getting a jetpack from, from, you know, flying around New York, I think yeah. that's probably a little far away. But, you know, when it happens, I think let's do it for sure. It'll, it'll be cool. All right, so Jonathan, uh, one, how do people subscribe to Where's My Flying Car, your Substack? Yeah, so just go to Substack, and it's called Where's My Flying Car. You'll find me there. We have uh, 13, 14,000 subscribers, and uh, yeah, please sign yeah, up. I, I will just endorse as a, as a reader of it. I, I really enjoy it. And then how do people learn more about Sky Trades? whether it's to to partner with you guys or to list their property or anything else. Yeah, you can reach out to me. I'm Jonathan at skytrades.io, uh, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, um, or you can reach us at uh, sky.trade is where we are as well. So you can reach us there. Jonathan Dockwell, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much, Bradley. 
Firewall is recorded on the Lower East Side of PNT Netware, home to New York City's only free podcast recording studio. Let us know if you have a question, feedback, or ideas for a guest. Just email me at bradley at firewall.media or find me on Twitter, or some people now call it X, at Bradley Tusk. And don't forget to pre-order my debut novel, Obvious in Hindsight, wherever books are sold, especially here at PNT Network.